in this series that was um, being developed uh, by some of our pastoral staff, I was asked to give a message today on the subject of the application of the Bible. Before we pray, I want to give you a little heads up that some of the material today is uh, somewhat didactic or kind of classroomish, but I think it's appropriate for us as we all want to become better students of God's Word and to handle it with care. So today we'll be discussing applying the Bible, uh, the application of biblical truth in our daily lives. How is that determined? How do we gain that from the biblical text? That will be our subject for today. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for the opportunity to meet together today, and I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts will be pleasing to you and that it leads us to a, a deeper and greater understanding that to know you in your word changes lives. And I pray, Father, to that end, today's message will be another step forward. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Lon Solomon was the pastor of McLean Bible Church for decades. And he had a masterful technique that he used in his messages when it pertained to the subject of application. Like any expositor of the Word, he would explain the passage, he would share with us what it says, he would share with his audience what it means. But when he came to that place where he wanted to share how it works, how it's lived in life, he would answer, ask his congregation to answer this question. He would say, and that leads us to this. And everybody in the congregation would yell out, so what? Every week, that's what happened. And the people got used to that, waiting for that time that they could yell out, so what? Because the issue is, so what? What difference does that biblical text make? What value is it? So what that we have learned it? Is that the end goal? And in his masterful device that he has inserted, he demonstrates that the study of God's Word without the application of God's Word is vain. Last week, Dennis McNutt was sharing with us from James chapter 1, and he shared a verse that we be doers of the Word and not hearers only. You know, here at Fellowship Bible Church, the pastoral staff, as the elders as well, our radar is on high alert for deception. We are concerned about what our people hear, what they read, what they learn. We know that the enemy of our souls is one that is not ignorant of how to use the Scriptures falsely and to teach people things that are not true and contrary to what God has intended in the biblical text. And therefore, as shepherds of God's people, we seek to be as alert as possible to protect our people from that and confront it when it happens. And guard our people's minds and hearts to lead them into the truths of the Scriptures. And that's a deception that we're always on alert for. But there's another deception that I'm afraid that we're not as alert to as what we should be. It's a deception that can sneak in under the radar. 
we're very keen on what is true and what's not true from the biblical text, but the deception I'm speaking about can oftentimes go in unchecked. James refers to it in the verse I just quoted, be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. The deception that James is referring to is not orthodox doctrine versus unorthodox doctrine, but rather orthodox truth that is applied and orthodox truth that is not applied. It's not only what we believe that's important, it's what we do with what we believe. The application of the biblical text, and unless the application of the biblical text is taught and exemplified, we have not reached the true goal that God has intended for the study of his word. Any passage of scripture has truths to be believed. It shares and shows us attitudes that need to be adjusted. And it oftentimes reveals to us behavior that needs changing. Paul says in 2 Timothy, for all scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for teaching. We're really good about that here at FBC. We really are. We're known as the teaching church. Far and wide, that's what people come here because we teach. We teach from this pulpit. We teach in classrooms. We teach in small group settings. We host Bible study fellowship in our rooms here in the facility. Nobody can fault us for the fact that we don't teach the Bible. We do. We're fellowship Bible church. But Paul goes on to say that the Word of God not only inspired for teaching, but for reproof, revealing to us things that need changing. It's also for correction, he says, and that's how to make that change. And then training in righteousness, which is spiritual growth and Christ-likeness, that the goal of biblical study is for that purpose. Then he says, so that the man of God may be equipped for every good work. The book of 2 Corinthians, Paul says that when we go into the scriptures, he makes reference back to the days of Moses when Moses would go into the tent of meeting and meet with God. And as Moses met with God, he would come out of the tent and he would be shining in glory to the degree that they would have to put a covering on Moses' head because he had just met with God and the glory of God was now reflecting off of Moses. But it began to fade and eventually Moses would go back into the tent of meeting and meet with God again. But Paul says with us, we also meet with God in a tent of meeting figuratively. When we go into the scriptures, it's the glory of Jesus Christ that shines in these pages. And as we go into the scriptures, that his glory reflects on us in the fact that what it says begins the process of changing us into the very image of Jesus Christ himself. His character becomes our character. And Paul says we are changed from glory to glory. That's what the goal of biblical study should be. Today we want to talk about how do we understand a biblical passage in terms of how it works today. How do we transition from the ancient Near East to the modern day in the United States of America? 
How do we find out what that application is? We want to discuss that a little bit this morning. But as we go into the subject of applying the Bible, there are three main points that I would like us to focus on this morning. Number one, applications need to be accurate. Number two, applications need to be relevant. And number three, applications need to be encouraged and exemplified. First of all, applications need to be accurate. As we study Scripture, the very first part of studying is the observation stage. This is where we answer the questions, what does the text say? The technical term is exegesis, which means to bring out. That's in contrast to eisegesis, which means to read in. We don't want to read into the Bible and make the Bible say something that God has not intended it to say. We want to gain out of what he wants us to know, what he intends to say. Exegesis is to bring out. We do that through observing the Scripture. So we observe words. We observe context. We observe phrases. We do word studies. We do comparisons called the comparative analysis. We do a variety of different things related to biblical study. Paul says in the book of 2 Timothy chapter 2 that this type of study is not for the faint of heart. He says this, be diligent in verse 15 to present yourself approved to God, a worker who does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing or rightly handling the word of truth. Bible study takes work. It's for workmen. It doesn't come to us on a silver platter. It shouldn't be spoon-fed to us all the time. Biblical study requires effort, requires some sweat, it requires time, requires thinking, investigation, persevering through those frustrating moments when it's not making sense no matter how hard you're studying. Biblical study is not for the faint of heart, but the value of it exceeds the work that we put into it. He uses the words rightly dividing or handling accurately the word of truth. That particular Greek term, handling accurately or rightly dividing, comes from a word that the root is orthos. We get the words orthodontics from it or orthopedics from it. My relative named Brian Den Hartog, not my son, I have a son named Brian, but there's another Brian Den Hartog, who is an orthopedic surgeon in Rapid City, South Dakota. If you know anything about Rapid City, South Dakota and the Black Hills, and if you ride a Harley, you know about Rapid City because it's in that area. Hundreds of thousands of Harley owners go every summer in August and gather. And Dr. Brian is in the hospital almost the entire time fixing broken legs, broken arms, shoulders that need to be reset. It means to set straight. It means to get it right, to make it right. And in this passage, what God is calling Timothy to is, as you work and seek to understand the Scriptures, do it that you would handle it accurately. In other words, you're going to get the right message out of it. You're going to handle it carefully to get it straight so to speak. 
Scripture only has one absolutely, total, 100% interpretation of any given passage. There's only one that's absolutely correct. And it's our job to find out what it is. And it's built upon the observation stage. I'm afraid that too many times people will jump to the second stage of what does it mean before they first understand what does it say. But after we determine what does it said, we do build upon that with answering this question, what does it mean? The technical term is hermeneutics. What is this text saying? What is, it, what is its meaning? Now, I'd like to just insert these thoughts for you to consider. Already today, you have been practicing hermeneutics nonstop because you have been processing communications all day long. You will continue to the rest of the day. You're reading billboards on the highway, signs on the highway. You're hearing verbal communication to you. You are reading newspapers or a magazine article or something on the Internet. You are constantly processing communication and what you are doing is you are unknowingly oftentimes, but you are seeking to find out what is the intended meaning of each communication that I receive. You know that it has a meaning, and your job is to find out what it is. And sometimes it's pretty easy, and other times it's a little bit more difficult. But you know that every communication has only one, absolutely one, right, total, absolute 100% meaning. You see a stop sign? If you want to interpret the stop sign that means go ahead and go, you can do that. But the policeman won't agree with you on your interpretation. He will say that was intended for you to stop, not to go. Folks, I want to share with you something that needs to be shared, and you need to teach this to your kids. There is not such a thing as a living document. It doesn't exist. There is not living communication. There are changes. There are people that change their communication, but the communication that they first uttered stays in place. That's locked in. To deny that, it's to deny the existence of gravity. You can deny it all you want, but that doesn't change it. Any communication that is made had one intended meaning, and that meaning was the one intended by its author. Whatever the author intended it to be is what the meaning really was. And that's how God speaks. And he doesn't like to be quoted out of context any more than what we do. So applications need to be accurate, built upon good observation of the text, then coming to determine to the best we can, what does this text mean? What's God's intended meaning through this biblical text? And then finally, how does it apply? How does it work? What difference does it make? So what? Application seeks to answer that. It seeks to carry the truths of the ancient writers into the 21st century that we understand what it is. Application is built upon the interpretation. The interpretation is built upon the observation. We cannot observe it 
and interpret it and then take application and say, well, it's a free-for-all now. However you want to apply it, go ahead and apply it. And we go outside the boundaries of what we have just said. Accurate application is built upon accurate interpretation, and accurate interpretation is built on accurate observation of the biblical text. It's no different than the way we process all communications. When we go to application, some people believe there is one interpretation, but many applications, and I would like to challenge that thought today. It seems to me that there's only one intended application of any given biblical text. Now listen carefully. But there are many ways in which that one application is implemented. So it's that transcending application that the author has intended, but there's different places and locations and contexts in which that one application can be implemented. It may be implemented in our marriages or in our relationships at work or our management of time or money or whatever be the case, whatever the biblical text is addressing, it's implemented in various ways and contexts, but it's that one application that we are seeking to determine from the biblical text. Applications need to be accurate. Dr. Howard Hendricks said this, that every time you observe and interpret but fail to apply, you perform an abortion in the scriptures in terms of their purpose. The Bible was not written to satisfy your curiosity. It was written to transform your life. Application is neglected. We miss the goal of biblical study. Dr. Haddon Robinson said, inappropriate application can be as destructive as inept exegesis. When Satan tempted Jesus in the wilderness, he tried to achieve victory through the misapplication of Scripture. In refuting the devil, Jesus did not debate grammar of the Hebrew text. Instead, he attacked the application of Psalm 91 to temple jumping. In other words, Satan quoted that verse accurately, but he didn't apply it accurately. And he's a master at doing that. That's how legalism seeps into churches. When do's and don'ts are coming from the Bible, but they're not intended to be the do's and don'ts of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's how a number of different false teachings and false conceptions arrive, is through that application stage. I'd like to set an example for you today, share with you one. You know that in 586 B.C., Judah was taken captive by the Babylonians, and Nebuchadnezzar brings the people of Judah to Babylon. And now as he is one who has conquered Judah, the biblical text says in Daniel chapter 1 that Nebuchadnezzar stole items out of the temple in Judah and put them into the house of his gods. And he says that twice the house of his God, twice. When you conquer a people in the ancient Near East, you have conquered their God. My God is stronger than your God. That's why we beat you. We're taking you captive because our God is stronger than your God. Another thing in the ancient Near East that you did when you conquered somebody and demonstrated that your God was stronger than their God is you changed their names. 
Naming somebody means supremacy or sovereignty over. God gave Adam the command to name the animals because man was to have dominion over the animal world. In the ancient Near East, when the people of Judah are taken captive, Daniel and his three friends that we know had their names changed. They were in the court because Nebuchadnezzar wanted people in his court that were attractive to his court. He took some of his prisoners and picked out the best ones and thought, I need the ones that are the most educated, the smartest, but I also need them to look good. They need to be buff. They need to be, uh, they need to be handsome. They need to give our court a good reputation. So they take these four guys and they say, okay, here's your diet. You're going to be eating this, this, and this, and that because we got to get you up to par. You've been sitting in Judah and not eating the best food and we got to get you back in shape. We're going to feed you these good foods and that's going to make you look good. And Daniel comes and says, we can't do that. Those are unclean foods to us. We cannot, we cannot do that. A risk was taken, said, okay, we'll let you eat what you want to eat, and then we'll take a check. And so Daniel and his three friends eat vegetables, not protein, not building up muscle mass, but vegetables. In the meantime, they take Daniel and they change his name. Daniel's name is God is my judge. They change it to Belteshazzar, which means may Bel, their God, protect his life. They took Hananiah, and his name means Yahweh, the God of Judah, is gracious. They changed its name to Shadrach, which means the command of Aku, the moon god. They took Mishael, whose name means who is God, who is what God is. And they changed his name to Meshach, which means who is what Aku is. They took the fourth individual, Azariah, whose name means whom Yahweh helps. And they changed it to Abednego, which means servant of Nebo, Babylon's God. Now, when you read that text and you find out that after eating the vegetables for all those days, those guys came back buff, that was a miracle, really. That was unexpected for them to just have vegetables for what normally only protein can do. I have heard some that take this text and say, this passage teaches us to eat our vegetables. And I'm thinking, really? Are you telling me that God inserted Daniel chapter 1 for people throughout all the ages to learn to eat their broccoli and cauliflower and asparagus? Is that what this is about? I think that needs to be revisited. Because as you study the text and the context and the name changing and the polemical aspects of the God overpowering the God of Judah and taking his things and putting it into their own temples... This miracle is the demonstrated that the God of Judah is still the supreme God. The supremacy of God is taught here that 
in spite of them having been conquered, Judah's God has not been conquered. And so you transfer that one application and you bring it into the 21st century and you think about this. The things that appear to have conquered us, our God has not been conquered by them. Cancer appears to conquer us, but it has not conquered God. An unfair employer appears to have conquered us, but he has or she has not conquered God. In other words, those times and experiences that we have when we feel that we've been conquered, our God is still supreme and is using those circumstances all for good. That is the application of this passage. Now, go ahead and eat your vegetables. We all should. But that's not what the passage is about. It's much more than that. Time doesn't allow us this morning to go into other examples. This Proverbs 29, 18, when there is no vision, the people perish. Is that about setting a vision for your corporation or for your church? having a direction for the people to follow, and we use that verse to back up what we're going to be doing and the focus for the future. I challenge us to revisit that one because it's not dealing with that at all. It's dealing with something much more significant when he says that when there is no vision, the people perish. By your fruit you shall know them. Is that really about judging whether a person is a true Christian or not by their good works? Hey, check that one again. Take a look at the broader context. You may just change your mind on that one. Do we need to ask Jesus into our heart to be saved because he says he stands at the door and knock and if we hear his voice, open the door and he will come into us? Is that what God calls us to do in order to have eternal life? Hey, check that verse again. The context is dealing with something much more related to believers, not how to become one. And the list can go on and on. Because applications need to be accurate. They need to be built on solid observation of the text and the determination of the single meaning of the text to determine the application of the text and then bring the cookies to the lower shelf and transfer it from the ancient Near East to the 21st century. But applications not only need to be accurate, they need to be relevant. When we determine what that transcending application is, we need to carry it to the present day. How does that application work today? Let me give you an example. In 1 Timothy chapter 5, we are told by the Apostle Paul that in the early church, widows who did not have employment opportunities at all, who were usually very, very poor, without Social Security or retirement benefits or pension funds from their husbands, that if they do not have family to care for them, that the church is to make sure that their needs are met, that they have food, that they have clothing, that they have a place to stay and to live. 1 Timothy 5 instructs the church to do that. But 
Paul goes on to say, however, if the widow has family, sons, daughters, grandsons, granddaughters, that the family should take that responsibility and not place the care of that widow upon the church. That the family should care. And then Paul says that the children or the grandchildren should repay their parents. To repay them for what? Well, they took care of us when we were small, and we turn around and take care of them now when they have need and are dependent upon somebody else. You take that overriding application and you transfer it into the 21st century, and it may go something like this. Some of these are true in my own life and experience with my own parents. Um, in the middle of the night, there's a small child coughing away and running a fever, and my mom would spend the night with me, and She'd make up a mixture of honey and lemon juice and try to suppress that cough and bring that fever down and sacrifice much-needed rest for her to do that. And in recent years, we've been taking care of her and taking her to doctor appointments and making sure she gets the right medication and administering it to her because she couldn't figure it out on her own. I, it was the time to repay her. Or my dad, who pushed me in a stroller from here to there when I was a kid, and when he got MS at age 34, I spent years pushing him in his wheelchair from here to there, whether through the park to enjoy a beautiful fall afternoon or pushing his wheelchair up to a table in a restaurant of his favorite place to eat. He pushed my stroller, I pushed his wheelchair, repays him. They changed my diapers. My parents lived ripe old ages. I made sure that they had their needs cared for as well. Why? Because we've taken an application of the first century and we brought it into the 21st. I will never forget when Mark Carey was introducing the book of 1 Corinthians in a sermon series. It was the first sermon of the series. And he spent quite a bit of time sharing with us about Corinth, its wickedness, the culture, uh, the carnality, and then that this church in Corinth in the first century, 2,000 years ago, was smack in the middle of that cesspool of a culture. And he was explaining all these different facts of their idolatry and their prostitution in the temples and all of these wicked things in Corinth. And then he said this. He said, and you know, whatever happens in Corinth stays in Corinth. You know what he did by that? By that one statement, he took something from 2,000 years ago and put it right into the here and now. Because now we identified. Las Vegas is not the only place of a corrupt culture. It reflects our whole country where believers are called to live right now. And all of a sudden, in my mind, 1 Corinthians now became something for the here and now. We have to develop current examples, make it relevant, bring it into our lives. And folks, I'm going to insert this. 
when you are under somebody else's teaching of the word and they're not doing that, ask them, can you give me an example? How does this apply in life? And can you share with me an example? And if they can't tell you, I know this sounds a little harsh, but if they can't tell you, they really don't know the passage. You don't really know it just because you can state the exegetical details. You know it when you know what the transcending application is to the modern day and are able to communicate it. Ask them. Hold our feet to the fire, those of us who are Bible teachers. Don't let us get by with just facts and figures. Make us tell you how it works and give you examples that we can explain how it works so that when you leave, you have something to model. You have something that brings it home. When you study the Scriptures yourself, look for it in that way. And that leads us to the third point. Not only must applications be accurate, not only must they be relevant, but they must be encouraged. When we go to the Scriptures, that we go not as a textbook, but as a book that will change our lives through seeing the glory of Jesus Christ and ask God, God, whatever you want to show me, please show it to me. Is there a truth that I need to yet believe? Is there an attitude that needs to be adjusted? Is there a behavior that needs to be changed? I come into your presence in the tent of meeting as I go into this book and the glory of Jesus Christ show me and then change me through its words and through the power of your Holy Spirit. Ask God to do that. Ask your mentors and teachers to help you with that. And by the way, I did want to say this. Our pastoral staff each has an email address. It's our first name and the initial of our last name at fbcva.org. John Morrison as an example. It's J-O-H-N and then M for Morrison at fbcva.org. I want to share with you that if you ever get stuck on a passage, you cannot figure out what it says, let alone what it means, and you're just stuck. You're scratching your head and you cannot figure out what this passage is saying, what it means, or how it works. I want you to know that you can email me at any time. And I'll get the right answer to you real soon. My email is this, M-A-R-K-C at F-B-C-V-A. I don't think I'm that arrogant to say that I would know all the answers, but I will say this. We need each other. We need to have conversations. Hey, I've been reading this. What do you think on this? Have you ever looked at this passage? Let me bounce this off of you. Or, hey, I've, I'm kind of stuck here. Do that with each other. That's a good thing. Do that with your teachers, your mentors. Do that with your friends. Encourage application. How do you think this really works in life? Can you tell me examples that come to your mind where this comes into play? A people or a church that's devoted to biblical study without application will develop into a church of cold orthodoxy and arrogance. It becomes arrogant about how much we learn and how much we know. But a church that is devoted to biblical study with an emphasis on application will be a church that grows in love for each other and effectiveness in reaching our world for Christ. 
the Apostle Paul said these words, the goal of our instruction is love. As we get to know the God of the Scriptures, entering into the tent of meeting, it will become more and more evidenced by love. Jesus said, to love one another as I have loved you is the new commandment. It's the evidence of biblical application. He also said this, he who has my commands and keeps them, it is he who loves me. And whoever loves me, I will love him and I will show myself to him. If our study does not lead us to that greater and deeper intimacy with God, our study is in vain. But if it does, it's worth every drop of sweat that we have given to find out what it says, what it means, and how it works. Someone once said, people don't know how much you, people don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. That has a lot of biblical basis to it. I am less and less impressed with people who have great knowledge and facts and figures of the biblical text, original languages and so forth, but cannot bring it down home to where it works. Biblical scholarship is good. I support it. I've pursued it. But it's not the end. It's a means. The end is the glory of Jesus Christ changing our lives as we understand this book better and submit to its words and let him change us from the inside out. In closing, I want to share something more on a personal basis as a tribute. I grew up in a home that witnessed this every day. And that is not an exaggeration. Early in the morning, whether around a kitchen table or in the living room with a Bible on her lap, I witnessed my mother entering in the tent of meeting and encountering the glory of Jesus Christ through the pages of the scriptures every day. She never taught a class, didn't write a book, didn't ever speak in public, practiced her gift of hospitality, but she went to meet with God. There was a sense of reverence when we would walk into this context early in the morning. You didn't want to interrupt it because there were two that were having communication with each other. And so I look at her. She doesn't know the Greek alphabet from a hill of beans. But I know that she knows the God who authored this book. I'm all for Greek alphabet. I know it. But it's a means to an end. The end is to know God himself. Throughout the pages of her Bible were numerous numerous handwritten notes as she would listen to her pastor's sermons or study things on her own. And this is a picture of her Bible today. 
duct tape and all. I once heard, if you see someone with a Bible that's falling apart, you're likely seeing someone who isn't. In just a few moments, I'm going to close in prayer and leave this podium and get into a car that's waiting for me behind our youth entrance doors to attend my mother's funeral. My brother and sister and I uh, talked after she went into the Lord's presence on Thursday, and my brother was with her. And the decision was, Donnie, you stay. That's what they call me, Donnie. They can call me that, but you can't. <laughs> you stay, because you know what mom would want. And I can picture her saying, you don't worry about me. You preach that sermon. And today I wanted to honor her. As an example of what we're talking about here, let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. On Christ the solid rock I stand, and the Christ of the scriptures. Help us to go into that book every day with an attitude of meeting you and allowing it through your Holy Spirit to change our thinking and then to change our lives. To meet you there and to know you more intimately and deeply. We love you. We want to love you more. And we want to have you disclose your love to us. In Jesus' name, amen.